Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, my church is definitely this little island of misfit toys. These are just people who do not fit in other churches. Mm -hmm. And so they can almost be a little idealistic when they come to House for All Sinners and Saints because they really get to be themselves. They don't have to check part of their personality or part of their story at the door. And they love that. And so we'll have these welcome to house brunches and people will go around the room. You know, people have been there to the church for a while, show up too. And we go around a circle and say, what drew you to this community or what keeps you here? And it's, it's great to hear it. You know, everyone's like, the singing's incredible. We're a cappella, you know, so they're like the singing or the community or whatever. They go around the room. It's, it's always pretty standard. And then it ends with me. And I always say, man, I love hearing all that. And I love this church too. But here's what I need you to hear me say. This church will disappoint you. At some point, I will say something stupid and hurt your feelings, or we will fail to meet your expectations. So I just invite you on this side of that happening to decide if you're going to stick around after it happens. Because if you leave, you'll miss the way that grace can come in and fill in those cracks left behind by our brokenness and create something new and beautiful. And that's too beautiful to miss. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Nadia, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Oh my gosh, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So, you know, I came across you by uh, way of one of our listeners. And when she sent me your story, I thought, you know, this is fascinating. This would make for a very, very interesting discussion. So on that note, um, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your background, uh, your story and sort of the journey before the journey that's led you to where you're at today? Yeah, I um, I was raised a, a fundamentalist Christian, really sectarian and um it ends up that being a smart and smart mouth girl is just not really welcome in that environment. So eventually I, we sort of realized, yeah, I don't really fit here. And so I, I left, uh, I left Christianity with a lot of anger towards it, to tell you the truth. And then, um, and then I sort of had a, a fairly impressive drug and alcohol problem. And then eventually I got sober and then eventually I ended up meeting this really cute Lutheran who was in seminary. And um, my previous boyfriend had spent six years in Susanville for armed robbery. So I had never gone out with somebody nice before, much less a Lutheran from Texas. Uh, so I ended up marrying him. And he ended up introducing me to a, a form of Christianity I didn't even know existed. Like when on our first date, we were talking about social justice issues. And we just saw eye to eye on all this stuff. And then he goes, yeah, well, my heart for social justice is really rooted in my Christian faith. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what are you, like a unicorn? Like some mythical combination of creatures that doesn't exist in reality? And um, so he just introduced me to this other form of Christianity I didn't know existed. And strangely, I ended up uh, going back to college. I was just such a fuck up. I, you know, I, I didn't go to college till I was 28, didn't graduate till I was 36. And then went straight into seminary and ended up starting a church when I was in seminary, and it's the church I still serve now called House for All Sinners and Saints. And uh, I was ordained in 2008. And um, I basically started the kind of church I'd want to go to. I just almost never visit churches that I'm like, wow, I'd really love to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. But I believe I, I loved the, the theology because Lutheran theology is really based in paradox rather than in dualistic thinking. And so I was really drawn to that theology because I experienced so much of it to be true al already in my life. And so I just had a lot of freedom um, to, to do what I wanted with this church. It was sort of off the grid for a while. And then the denomination sort of brought it into the fold and made, and we became an official congregation just last, last January. Um, and um, we actually had to do a, an organization thing with the bishop with this sort of you know, really formal process. And so we're like, oh, God, that sounds dreary. We had, to, we had to write articles of incorporation and a budget and a bunch of crap we've never done. And so we did that, and they had a whole list. You have to do all these things to be organized as a congregation. And the final thing, they're like, you should plan a celebration, a party, you know? So we, we looked at that list, and it was like the grown-ups on, on, on Peanuts. It was like, wah, 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 party. So it's like <laughs> we went through this whole process just to get to the the party, really. And we became organized as a congregation. The bishop came. We did this whole formal thing. But we rented out a roller rink for the event. And so it was like congregational organization slash roller disco party with the bishop. So it was awesome. Hmm. Awesome. Well, um, you know, I actually want to go back to the very beginning of this, you know, and I love, you know, you brought up sort of being raised um, as this this fundamentalist person. I want to dig deeper into your childhood uh, before we, we get you know even further into the story, I mean, 
you know, how did being raised like this influence, you know, your view of the world? I mean, you also talked about this idea of, of not fitting. Uh, and it seems like you kind of stood up and challenged the status quo. And, and I'm really curious, you know, I, I get the feeling that a lot of people listening to this have this sense of not fitting or not belonging. And we're all kind of searching for that place of belonging, which I think is, is probably largely what has brought you and I together for this conversation. Um, so talk to me about that. I mean, what was it like growing up in that environment? Well, um, it, it, there's this whole process when you're a kid where you don't know that like your life's weird. Do you know what I like? You just, it's just your life. And then you meet other people and you're like, you tell them about your life and they're like, that's weird. Right. And so then you begin to realize, okay, it's a little, it's a little weird. So I didn't know that we were fundamentalists. You know, I, I just knew that, you know, you weren't supposed to have friends who weren't in the church. You weren't supposed to date outside the church. We, the only people who were in our home were people from church. We lived in this kind of bubble. And you're given these messages all the time about here's what it means to belong. Here's what it means to be a good Christian. And it, honestly, it felt like what it means to be a good Christian means having a really particular personality more than anything else. It's like, I, and I just, I didn't have that personality. And so, um, as I sort of got exposed to the world, which we were supposed to fear and be removed from, um, I was like, wait a minute, I, I'm, I was told that like gay people are these horrible sinners and you shouldn't have anything to do with them. And yet now I have gay friends and they love me better than the people at church seem to be able to, you know, so how do I reconcile that? So there was this sort of dissonance between what I was being told and what I was actually experiencing. And, um, and that, you know, that that's a whole process. And so eventually, I just couldn't have anything to do with it. I definitely didn't fit. The other part of my story is I had an autoimmune disorder when I was growing up. So I was really sick. And it caused my uh, some these abnormalities in my face, my my eye, my eyes bulged out of my head, like my eyelids couldn't close. So just bulging out of my face. And um, so I looked abnormal from age 12 to 16 until I could have it surgically corrected. And I think like one of two things could happen if you have that ha if if you have that type of experience in those formative years, you can either become like a diminished like person who tries to disappear or alternately you can be like, "Oh yeah, fuck you." And like I did the latter and not the former. Mm -hmm. And so I just I kind of developed this anger and this like fuck you attitude. And it protected me. It like saved me in a way until I added a bunch of sort of chemicals to it. And then it kind of almost killed me. So. Hmm. Well, you know, I love this idea that you brought up of sort of the dissonance that gets created by, you know, the different narratives that are that are playing out in our lives. And I think that to some degree, maybe we all are experienced that. I mean, if you're talking to somebody who's listening, how do you resolve that kind of a dissonance, whether it's with your career, whether it's with your life, whether it's, it's you know, with, with the culture that you've grown up in? Because, I mean, I've grown up Indian, so there's definitely some level of dissonance that I've experienced there, too, um, yeah. choosing to do something incredibly unconventional. Right. Um <clears throat> I don't know. I guess there's just like, I, I can have this gnawing feeling like something's wrong. Something doesn't fit. Something doesn't fit. And I think the more self-searching I'm willing to do, the more I'm willing to be really honest about myself and about what I'm experiencing in the world, the better. Because if you, if you kind of, if you kind of ignore it, those drum beats just get louder and louder. And then it's the only thing you can hear. You know what I mean? Like you, I just feel like, um, I I have a I have this really deep commitment to trying to be as honest about about myself as I possibly can, um, almost to a fault. I mean, people some people are like almost embarrassed for me for the stuff I put in my memoir. They're like, "Wow, you've really, really wrote some inelegant things about yourself," <laughs> which I I don't know. I kind of don't have any shame. I think I don't. It doesn't bother me to sort of be really honest about myself. So I guess if there's that sort of thing that's not, you can feel that tension and that 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 sort of thump thump thump. The the sooner you deal with it, and the more honest you can be about the circumstances in your life and the shit that's going on inside of you, the better. I mean, that's just what I found. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think the, the whole thing really is a process of self-inquiry and self-exploration. And, and, you know, what I've found is, is that in that process, sometimes it'll lead you to some sort of dark places, but you have to be willing to go there to get out to the other side. Yeah, no question. No question. It's the only, it's just the only way you get any freedom. Mm -hmm. Well, 
let's do this. I mean, I, you know, so it sounded like, you you know, you mentioned you developed this sort of fuck you attitude, which, you know, gave you sort of a, a layer of protection almost. Um, and it, sleeve tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, talk to me about that. I mean, you know, talk to me about how that's served you and also mm-hmm. how it has, has hurt you. Well, um, it's interesting. It just a, about like the tattoos. I, I started getting tattooed when I was 17. It was in the mid 80s. And um, teenage girls weren't particularly getting tattooed in the mid-80s, right? And uh, it was almost a way of saying, like, you know what? I'm not part of your tribe. You're right. You know, it's like sort of reclaiming that for my own and sort of going, I don't really want to be part of the mainstream. And little did I know, you know, if I just hung out long enough, I would become me. I look like a fucking soccer mom where I hang out. You know what I mean? Like, it's so common for people to be tattooed and pierced now. It's like it used to be this wild thing, and now it's just, like, super mild. Mm-hmm. But um, but the, the, the screw you thing, I think it protected me because it just – it was this form of self-preservation um, of saying, like, there is a part of me that you can't touch. I'm not letting you. Like, there's something that cannot – inside of me that cannot be violated that absolutely – um, will be preserved. And, um, and the ways in which it hurt was that it closed me to certain tenderness, I think, and uh, the ability to be vulnerable for a long time. Like I was unwilling to be vulnerable. Like my, bit, my MO was protecting myself, making sure no one was going to betray me, that everyone knew that I was strong as steel. And the interesting thing is now that I'm in my mid-40s and and I'm a clergy person, the irony is that my actual strength is in my ability to be vulnerable. Like, that actually is where I am strong. Uh, And it's this sort of paradox. But, um, like, if I'm preaching, just because of who I am, like, if I'm preaching and I, like, choke up a little, like, I'm, like, people are affected by that, you know? And... I found in my work that my ability to have some vulnerability and to tell some truths about myself can be really powerful because what it does is it it allows other people the permission to do that for themselves instead of trying to hide or trying to pretend. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting you bring up vulnerability and, and, you know, I I see that theme sort of, you know, running throughout uh, a lot of our cultural narrative nowadays, you know, especially because of Brene Brown's work with uh, books like Daring Greatly and and all the things that she's talked about. Um, But I want to get back to this idea of, you know, tenderness, you know, vulnerability and that sort of leading to strength, because I think that, you know, a lot of us um, get to this point of of being self-protective because of the experiences that happen in our lives. Um, and we say, okay, you know what, if I'm this way, uh, I can't be hurt. And, you know, vulnerability often will lead us to a lot of painful places. I'm really curious, you know, how do you, how do you get back in touch with sort of that vulnerability and that tenderness if you've been through, uh, you know, painful experiences? I mean, I'd love, and I'd love for you to talk about it through the lens of your own stories. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, even just recently to tell you the truth, I'm still learning that, you know, I've, I've had this congregation since the fall of 2007, we started sort of gathering with eight people in my living room once a month. Now, now it's, you know, an actual big congregation, biggish congregation. But, you know, I just maybe six months ago realized um, that they love me. It's like this, uh, anybody who came to my church would be like, wow, your congregation really loves you. And it wasn't until like six months ago that I really sort of had that realization and realized that it's okay to allow myself to be loved by my parishioners. Now, I don't get my emotional needs met through them. I have ways of doing that outside. I'm, we're not friends in that, that particular way. But, um, you know, it's like years of being around this before I realized, like, they actually love me. And I just took a three-month sabbatical and, and uh, came back a couple weeks ago. And just the way in which they embraced me when I returned was really beautiful. And my, I just, for whatever reason, it feels like my heart gets broken and then put back together in a bigger way over and over in the work that I do. And, um, but I always, I never start there. I mean, you know, in the, in the book I say, look, my first reaction to almost everything is fuck you. Now I almost, (laughs) I almost never stay there, but I almost always start there. Uh And, um, the older I get, the more quickly I'm able to move to something else. And so I never start with like an open heart. It feels like it has to be sort of 
I describe it as having this divine heart transplant. It feels like God reaches into my, into me and pulls out this heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, something warm and beating again over and over and over again. And it, and it's always because, you know, there's somebody I refuse to like, and then somehow I end up loving them anyway. You know, it's funny in a Q and a, uh, a few months ago, this very earnest seminarian said, Pastor Nadia, um, tell us what you do personally to get closer to God. And like, before I knew what I was saying, I went, what? Nothing. Oh my God, why would I do that? That sounds terrible. So I'll, why? So I'll end up like liking, you know, loving someone I don't like or doing some shit I don't want to do again? No. Like, so my experience of God is not this sort of warm, fuzzy, makes me into this sort of bland person. It's like, it, it feels like death and resurrection over and over and over again. That that experience, my heart breaks and is and it's put back together into something bigger. Hmm. You know, it's funny. Um, one of my friends uh, said, you know, she's like these experiences, and you're talking about you know heartbreak, which can happen in numerous ways. Uh, you know, just painful experiences should often become our greatest teachers in our lives. No question. You kidding? I've never, I haven't learned shit when things were going well in my life. I mean, it feels nice. You know what I mean? I mean, it feels good. And, and the weird thing is that we judge like how good our life is by how uh, sort of problem free or, you know, if you don't have any conflict or you this sense of well-being. Well, yeah, but you're boring. You know what I mean? You're not learning anything or growing in any kind of wisdom when that happens, you know? I mean, my so much of my preaching, I think, has to do with suffering, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sort of what's, what's, what comes out of that. And ultimately, the thing, the weird thing to me is like, that's like so much for me, the foundational truth of Christianity. It's about death and resurrection. I don't know how the main message became niceness <laughs> or, or, or like some contrived version of morality, you know, it, when really it's much more gruesome than that. It's like death and resurrection, it's spiritual physics, like something has to die in order for something new to live, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you mentioned the idea of, of judgment uh, of, of all these problems and, and, and suffering. And, you know, I see so many people who they get trapped in their suffering uh, without getting to the other side, you know, like you mm-hmm. go through this thing that, that really hurts you. And somehow, you know, my, my business partner, Greg, always says, you know, your temporary circumstances don't have to become your permanent identity. And yet he's seen so many people in his life where that happens. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious to, to hear sort of you know, your perspective on and, you know, how you let go of judgment through your suffering and how you navigate it in such a way that you do come out better for it. And I, I, I think our own judgment of our own suffering keeps us in it so much longer. You know, it's like, or people will be like having a really hard time in life and like people of faith, they'll have a really be struggling, have a difficult time. And then they, what they do is they add, they add to that feeling bad that they don't feel God's presence. I'm like, why would you add to like things already being hard? Let that part go, you know, like judging where we're at often just keeps us there. And then sometimes, honestly, we, um, if you're, if you're somebody for whom everything's just so hard, then uh, people don't have permission to call you out on something or they don't have permission to expect something of you. And sometimes, you know, I think posturing so that nobody has any, nobody has to expect anything from us is a very comfortable place to stay. Like if, and so, um, you know, it's scary to, to, uh, to have to move out of that because then, oh, you might have to actually full, find full-time work or you'll have to like show up for your friends or whatever it is, you know? So in a way, there's there can be something cozy about just staying in a place that sucks because then, well, nobody has to expect anything from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's really, that's, that's an interesting observation. I've never really heard it put that way, but you know, it's... <laughs> I feel like there's so little progress that occurs in those places where we stay comfortable. Uh, you yeah. know, it kind of takes us back to that point, you know, that we were making earlier that, you know, it's, it's, it's the difficult things that actually cause you to grow. You don't really learn anything from, you know, life being easy. Oh yeah. Well, and also I've never learned anything from being right ever. <laughs> like my, someone 
said, well, what's your next book about? I'm like, oh, my God. It's another collection of my personal humiliations for, like, the general public's enrichment. <laughs> Basically, it's, like, chapter after chapter of me either being wrong or being an asshole or both, right? So, um, but that's how, that's where I learn. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's, that's where I sort of, you bump up against something and you go, oh, man, now I, now what, right? So, um, and it, that shit keeps happening to me. I, it's not like I've sort of, grown so much that now I never am wrong about I continue to be wrong about things and continue to learn something bigger than what I thought I knew mm-hmm. well let me let me ask you this um, you know I, I see so many creative people who are so afraid to be wrong uh, and, and to try things and I only know this because this morning you know I I sent out a piece um, that we were working on for a bunch of feedback and it was amazing to see the wide variety of, of feedback. Some people are like, I love this. Other people are like, this is disjointed. Other people are like, I hate this. It, it screams, you know, mm. uh, agony. And I was like, wow, this is confusing as shit. <laughs> yeah, what do you do with that? I'm like, I don't even, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to discard some of it. But, you know, getting past this sort of um, idea of, of, you know, being wrong and saying, you know, how do you get to being okay with being wrong and actually use it for your growth? Oh my gosh. Well, you know what? I think I think the fact that I'm uh, I don't feel a lot. I guess I don't carry around a ton of shame about being wrong, so it do, it doesn't like bother me. And I think that actually allows me to have authority as a clergy person in in a community filled with people who are suspicious of authority, mm-hmm. right? Because they never feel like they have to look behind the curtain, you know, and see what's there. I just say, "Wow, you know what? I fucked this one up, or I made a bad call, or." I made a mistake, forgive me, you know, and, um, and then it's just sort of out in the open and we can move on. But I feel like a lot of people in leadership and in positions of authority do a lot of things to try to pretend that they're not wrong about something, or they do a lot of things to not show that they're weak or don't know something. Whereas if you're just out with it, there's a whole population of people that are more likely to trust you than if you try and pretend. Because here's the thing about mistakes, other people see them. They know they're happening. And if you're like trying to, you just lose credibility, you know? So um, I don't know. It just doesn't, it's funny because people can be a little, you know, my church is definitely this little island of misfit toys. These are just people who do not fit in other churches. Mm -hmm. And so they can almost be a little idealistic when they come to House for All Sinners and Saints because they really get to be themselves. They don't have to check part of their personality or part of their story at the door. And they love that. And so we'll have these welcome to house brunches and people will go around the room. You know, people have been there to the church for a while, show up too. And we go around a circle and say, what drew you to this community or what keeps you here? And it's it's great to hear it. You know, everyone's like, the singing's incredible. We're acapella, you know, so they're like the singing or the community or whatever. They go around the room. It's it's always pretty standard. And then it ends with me. And I always say, man, I love hearing all that. And I love this church too. But here's what I need you to hear me say. This church will disappoint you. At some point, I will say something stupid and hurt your feelings, or we will fail to meet your expectations. So I just invite you on this side of that happening to decide if you're going to stick around after it happens. Because if you leave, you'll miss the way that grace can come in and fill in those cracks left behind by our brokenness and create something new and beautiful. And that's too beautiful to miss. So just try and stay after that happens. And I've literally had parishioners email me and go like what well, something will happen or I'll make some mistake or I'll I'll screw the pooch in some way and they're like this is what you were talking about and I'm like yeah it is you know what decision are you going to make here you're going to stay or go and they're like I'm going to stay some people go but um I like I'm not an idealist at all be, mostly because I just know myself really well and I'm I'm I I think I'm I'm uh I'm I'm suspicious of myself and so um that makes me not an idealist when it comes to human projects. But then there's a lot of freedom in that. You can discover things. You can be surprised, you know. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. <laughs> well, I love the idea of, of you know, being suspicious of yourself. You know, it, I, I think it might have been in Danny Shapiro's book, Still Writing, where she says, you know, be wary of those times where you think you know what you're doing. Oh, my gosh. No question. <laughs> well, yeah. let's go back to, to another piece of this in the beginning. You know, this period of drug and alcohol abuse. I mean, it, talk to me about that period of your life. You know, what was going on? You know, what prompted it? How did it affect every other area of your life? I mean, Talk, talk to me about sort of the, the, you know, that seems like your dark night of the soul almost. Yeah, for sure. And like, it was pretty immediate. Like that was just a bet. Like my personality plus like booze is a terrible combination. <laughs> so um, it happened pretty quick and I became pretty dependent on, on not being sober, you know, so in whatever form that ended up taking. And, um, there, it's like there's switch goes off inside of me if I start and that, and then no one knows how to turn that switch off, you know? So <clears throat> I don't know. I'm grateful. I'm, you know, I've been in a, in the, in a 12 step program for 22 years. So, um, it, and it's really formed who I am and, it, uh, and boy, talk about, you know what, you know what qualifies you to be in that failure, mm-hmm. <laughs> in, right? What, like what other institution in America could that be said, you know, and then pe- and like people have to be honest about that in order to get better. So I think it's really influenced who I am as a person. And that, and you know what, I still feel like that monster's in me when Philip Seymour Hoffman died, that, that took, that took me down for a few days to tell you the truth, because 
first of all, he's a brilliant, brilliant artist. And I was devastated that we weren't going to get any more from him. But more than that, like we were the same age when we got sober. We'd been sober the same amount of time. We both have, you know, some success. I'm not obviously a Hollywood star, but, um, and had been in the program and stuff. And then, and I have a back injury and, you know, some doctor prescribed him some painkillers. And then all of a sudden he's dead with a needle in his arm. And it made me go like, I don't, I'm not better. You know, it's not like that monster isn't there. Like at any point in time, if I, I mean, I just have to respect the monster is mm. what I feel like, you know, it's not gone. Like I was in a coffee shop yesterday and somebody had two prescription bottles on their table and they had gone, I don't know even what they were and they'd gone to the bathroom. And like, then I was fixated on it while I was walking by, you know, this is 22 years clean and sober. <laughs> I'm like looking at this going, well, I wonder what that is. You know? mm. So you just have to respect the monster, I think. Let me ask you this, um, you know, and I've asked a, a similar version of this question to, to so many people, you know, what separates people who, in your mind, who come out the other side better off uh, and those who, who actually let it take them into the downfall and ultimately to places where they can't get out of? I have no answer for that. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I, I, it's a mystery to me. I yeah. mean, I feel like it was this just incredible grace that I had. And, um, you know, I describe it as like, you know, that movie La Femme Nikita or that there's a terrible American remake, uh, Point of No Return. Mm -hmm. She was like this, she was this part of this gang of sort of drug addicts who were knocking over uh, drug stores. And um, then there was a big shootout with the police and all of her friends died. She almost died, but they nursed her back to health. And they were like, look, we pretended you were dead and we had a funeral and so here's your choice. We can make sure you occupy that grave that your name's on, or alternately, you can work for us and we'll train you. But like, that's the deal. You're, you work for us. And I feel like, a, like, I feel like that. Like, I feel like I got my life back, but now I have to work for God or something. You know? Like, I, I wanted to call my memoir God's Bitch. You know, it's like, I'm just, uh, you know, I have to kind of do this thing and that's the deal. Um, that's what it feels like. Hmm. Well, let's do this. Um, but, um, oh, sorry. Just, sorry to, just to circle back. Why, why, why are my friends dead and like I'm not? Like why do I bury people who I got clean with but then they went back out or they never got sober time or whatever? I don't know, man. I'll, hmm. uh, the only thing I can do is be as grateful as I can for what I have now. But I have no – what? Like I worked the steps better than them? Bullshit. I mean, I just, I, I don't, it's a mystery to me. I don't know. Well, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's shift gears a, a bit and actually start talking about the, uh, the church for saints and sinners. Cause I mean, I, it's such a fascinating concept to me and that's what, that's why I was so intrigued as somebody who, um, has had a lot of strong opinions about organized religion. And, you know, my parents are super religious and, you know, I, I'd always said I'm not, uh, mm. even though I've grown up in a very, you know, a fairly devout household. Um, I mean, what are, you know, you talked about an island of misfits. So first, I, I want to talk about sort of the core messages behind, you know, what you guys do. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, and then I want to talk about the kinds of people that come in and what these services are like and, and all of that. So, I mean, talk to me sort of about, you know, how you came to this conclusion of this church for saints and sinners and, and you know, what the message and, and mission behind your work is. Yeah, I, I mean, I like I said, I just, I wanted to start a church that I'd want to show up to. Mm -hmm. and And so... I just got seven and seven, eight other people and said, what do you think? You know, what would that look like? Because I think there are a lot of people who would be involved in religious communities if they look different. And, um, and like most of the people who come to House for All Sinners and Saints weren't going to a church with any regularity when they showed up. You know, some people had never been to a church before. Mm -hmm. Mo most of us, including me, are kind of baffled every Sunday that we're even there at all. <laughs> you know? like, every time I every time I look around the room, I'm like, oh, it's like kind of a miracle that these people are here being a church together. You know, it just feels unlikely and kind of gorgeous. Um, but I think the best way to say what we believe is to say what we do. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, so we don't have a what we believe thing on our website because honestly, people believe all kinds of shit in my church. I mean, I don't feel responsible for what they believe at all. I feel responsible for what they hear. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm the preacher and I, I feel responsible for what language is in the liturgy and what the message is. But gosh, what they believe is influenced by all kinds of things I have nothing to do with. So uh, belief is not a sort of requisite for belonging in this community. Um, 
So I think it's like, if you want to know what we believe, come and see what we do. Mm -hmm. So the, the way that ends up playing out is that um, we're, our liturgy is actually very traditional. It's just not conventional. So um, we, we are kind of suspicious of things that are, that are uh, really modern, in a sense. You know? So I think there's, in a way, this is a community that's more uh, comforted by mystery than certainty. And there's a lot of mystery to be accessed in ancient sort of liturgical practices. Mm -hmm. And so uh, people find it counterintuitive how traditional the liturgy is at house. But anyway, so you walk in, first of all, um, it's in the round. So the altar table's in the middle, and we're in concentric circles in these sort of quadrants, right? So most, most churches, the way that the space is configured, like about a third of the space is, is for the two special people who get to stand up front. And then everyone else looks at the backs of each other's heads face, in rows facing the two special people. So we've totally democratized the space. There's no, I mean, there is no front, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, so, you know, if there's, these are people who are suspicious of institutions and suspicious of presumed authority. So just to have the space democratized helps that a lot, mm. right? And then the other thing that's just crazy is that we like to say we're anti-excellence pro-participation. So we don't really care about doing things well nearly as much as we care about doing things together and having all the voices in the room. So... All of the jobs, there's all these jobs in the liturgy, like there's the, the, the collect, the prayer of the day, and the post-communion prayer, and serving communion, and reading the gospel. I mean, there's like 15, 18 different things that are almost always done by clergy. And I've given all of those to the community. They don't belong to me. They belong to the community, because the word liturgy means the work of the people. And so when people walk in, all of those jobs are lined out, and someone says, they could be there for the first time and someone goes, hey, um, do you want to do one of the jobs? And so they'll, from where they sit, they just stand up and lead that part of the liturgy. So it's very communitarian. So in Lent, this very large uh, transgender woman who doesn't look like, not transitioned, like, you know what I mean? Like not a transitioned transgender person, but like a man in a dress and very, very large, shows up first time. Now, most churches would freak out, right? Like, they'd just be, like, weird about that. We don't care. We have trans people. It, about, you know, probably 25% of the church is queer. So, anyway, this person shows up. The first thing they're asked is, do you want to do a job? And they go, oh, well, we, I, I'd love to read. And so, it's Lent, and so they said, well, do you want to read the gospel? Now, in most churches, the gospel is only read by the clergy. So read, this person takes this gospel reading. It's really long. And they read it so gorgeously that it's like I had never heard that text before. I mean, the way in which this person reads was so beautiful. And so the way we do things, we have to give up predictability and control by, in the way that we function as a community we give those things up but then what we get is like this large transgender woman reading the gospel beautifully the first time they ever show up so um everything's very communitarian and then even the music is made it, the music in our liturgy comes out of the bodies of the people who showed up we don't have an organ we don't have a band and it's like full four-part harmony like rich, loud singing, and it fills the entire space. So, there. In, I mean, there's a bunch of other sort of stuff that goes on, but it's like we believe in uh, that all that like none are worthy and all are welcome. You know, mm -hmm. like like that's like our deal, and um, and and it's hard to live that out. It's hard. We have we have this value of welcoming the stranger, but you know what? Sometimes the stranger looks like your mom and dad. You know, it's not like welcoming the stranger. Oh, the homeless person. I think that's easier for us than when 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 my church was overcome with like uh, baby boomers from the suburbs. Mm -hmm. You know, they started showing up, and now we had to an extend welcome to them, and and that was and that was a struggle. 
And now they're, these are beloved members of our community. That's what makes it weird. You know, I thought when the like normal looking people showed up that it was going to dilute the weirdness of the church. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, so much weirder now. Because (laughs) now you look around, there's like a statewide elected official next to an ex-convict, next to a soccer mom, next to a gay couple. You're like, this place doesn't make any sense at all. Mm -hmm. It's, it's beautiful. You know, like, you know, as I listen to you describe this, I can't think, help but think that this isn't just about a church, but this is a role model for building communities at large. Um, and this kind of uh, way of being could be carried into all sorts of other communities. And I'm really curious, you know, especially because a lot of people listening here are building communities of, of different sorts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I'm going to steal some of your ideas for our next event. Uh, <laughs> but I'm very curious how we would carry out this sort of model of a community um, into the things that we're doing in our own efforts and into other areas. Like, you know, if you're building, you know, entrepreneurial ventures or if you're right. building creative ventures, because it seems right. like this kind of a community model could be approached there too. Well, I think we're so, we're so fierce in our commitment to grace. Mm-hmm. And I think that allows us a lot of freedom. You know what I mean? Like we can try stuff and have it not work. And we just think that's funny. Right. So, um, or, uh, you know, if I just the idea of grace, I think, is really huge in sort of allowing a lot of freedom. So I think that's first. Second of all, you know, it's interesting when you're talking about community, the community of House for All Sinners and Saints is unbelievable the way people show up in each other's lives and take care of each other. It's, it's like beautiful. And um, I see it all the time. We have a closed Facebook group. So the way people are showing up for each other and helping each other, giving aid, praying for each other, just it's, it's incredible. And I didn't create that. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that if I had started out wanting to create what it is now, I would have failed. I don't think it would be what it is. Meaning my focus is on what we call word and sacrament, right? As the founder and as the as the clergy person in this community, I have a very clear focus. I'm not trying to create the community. I'm focusing on what what are people going to hear in the liturgy? What are the actions going to be? How can we live into these values? I'm establishing the DNA. I'm maintaining the culture, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, that incredible community piece, that flowed out of that. Do you see what I mean? I think sometimes we want to try and do things head on that can't be done head on. They're always a result of something else. And so um, I've just kept that focus. And mm-hmm. then these other things have come out of that. You know, that's a, a really interesting way to look at it, because I think about sort of the community behind Unmistakable Creative and, and everything we do with Unmistakable Media, and it sounds so similar. You know, I always say, um, I didn't build anything. I just connected all the parts. Exactly, exactly. And you know what's interesting is I do, I do CrossFit somewhat mm-hmm. obsessively, and um, my gym's behind my house, and I hang out with these people all the time and the coaches at my house all the time. And I talk to him a lot because he started that gym, and I started this church. And so we talk about uh, being founders a lot and what that means. And the same thing with him. That's an incredible community. We hang out all the time with each other. I just, there were 20 of us who went to Colorado Springs this weekend to watch three or four of people competing in a weightlifting event, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, Neil, if your focus was trying to create that, it wouldn't happen. His focus is, is like top notch coaching and being really playful and welcoming at the same time. So he, that's his absolute focus there. And that other stuff follows. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you about the people who, you know, come, you've made some reference to them and, you know, I'm really curious, like what types of people show up to your church, you know, what makes them stay? Because, uh, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, my big issue with organized religion is that it takes too much time. Yeah, it is kind of time You know, I'm like, why is it a three hour service? My parents will try to make me go to a temple. And I'm like, I don't like to go because it takes too long. Ours is like 55 to 60 minutes. Uh So it's, we get, we get it, we go in, we do it, we're done. Partly because my sermons are 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. If you can't say it in 10 minutes, you're definitely not going to say it in 45 minutes, (laughs) right? So, like it takes me about 15 hours of work to write a 10 minute sermon because I believe in economy of language anyway. So, um, yeah, I mean, but the irony is that the people for whom it's the most transformative, the people who get the most out of it, the people for whom it's the most meaningful are the people who, who do make a time commitment to it. You know, some people just pop in and go to liturgy and leave, you know, we have that, 
but um, but the people who are who are really experiencing, I think, personal transformation in a way, are the ones who who also show up to the other stuff, or they do work. Like one of the values of our community is we share work. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a lot of people. We it's like a flash mob every Sunday. We don't own our own space, so like we have to we set up and break down. We start and end with a blank space. And and two hundred people at, at two different liturgies. We had to start. We have two now on Sundays, so um, you know it's like incredible barn raising every single week. So there's a way in which we share work. That's a value of the community too. Mm. You, you mentioned that uh, people experience personal transformations. I'm really curious. Um, do you have any stories of, of personal transformations that you've seen uh, people experience in their lives as a byproduct of this? Um, <clears throat> Yes, but it's not as sort of dramatic and like Hallmark card channel as you might imagine. Yeah. I mean, for instance, like, okay, this guy I wrote about in Pastrix, Rick Strandlaw, he, uh, and I, this is public information, so I'm not, you know, uh, violating confidentiality. That guy is an ex-convict. He's a pathological liar. He um, is a con artist. So he had a U.S. Supreme Court case with his name attached to it, right? And um in the book, I'm like, six months ago, Rick Stranloff came to us, a homeless, unmedicated, bipolar, pathological liar. And now, six months later, he's our homeless, unmedicated, bipolar, pathological liar. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's just ours now. But being ours, you know, like having people who love him, even though he's an enormous fuck up, um, I think that has allowed him to make some some better decisions. You know, he's definitely living indoors now, and mm-hmm. I think he's even employed. But um, anyway, I think a, a, a better one would be um, this one woman who has a really had a really kind of abusive mother who's not stable, and and has a lot of issues with her. Now, this woman had uh, my parishioner had been in like evangelical churches where they were like, you know, you just need to forgive her, and you need to work really hard to be a good daughter, and like they were just this coercive sort of like, here's what it looks like to be a good Christian, right? And she always felt bad. She couldn't do that with her mom, right? Instead, now she's been at house for years, and the main message is like, God's grace is freely given. You can't earn it. Like, nobody else can tell you who you are. Like, all this stuff about identity and the love and grace of God, like, this is this main message, the destabilizing grace of God. And so she emailed me. She goes, my mom posted something crazy on Facebook. And normally I would have just launched into this thing about how crazy she is. But she, in the Facebook post, my mom's like, I'm going through this and that, but I feel God's love and presence. And she said, normally that would spin me out because this woman's a nutter. Mm -hmm. She goes, but instead I thought, of course she feels God's love and presence. That's God's nature. Right? Mm -hmm. So like she... (laughs) She believed it so much for herself that she was able to believe it for her mom. You know, like, that's beautiful. Like, she's not spinning out into this crazy judgmental thing because she just really is clear that, like, it's God's nature to be present, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, to me, that's a beautiful that's a beautiful story, you know, that, that's, that's the kind of transformation. It's not a sort of, you know, prostitute becomes a librarian story, mm-hmm. but, um, but it's like, yeah, that, that changes people. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the memoir. Um, I mean, talk to me about sort of the, the, the byproducts and sort of transformation and outcomes in your own life that have been the result of all of this. Oh my God. Yeah. You mean like the success of the book? Yeah. The success oh, of your yeah, own personal success crazy. and transformation. Just weird, man. I don't know. I didn't know that was going to happen. It was on the New York Times bestseller list, and then all the media went crazy. You know, like the Washington Post wrote a two-page feature, and then it was like CNN and NPR and all this stuff. And then then the weird thing is like then you get news outlets that are writing stories about stories. You know what I mean? And it's not even – and then they take things and make them – inaccurate and it made like I really try to be honest about myself so it was making me nuts that they were like okay I've competed in Olympic style weightlifting a few times right pretty good at Olympic weightlifting but you couldn't say Nadia Boltzweber competitive weightlifter right that that's a different image Mm -hmm. and like I'm an alcoholic but they'd be like drug addict and it just made me crazy and so that that part I disliked and then I didn't like some of the bold headlines like can Nadia Boltzweber save liberal Christianity I'm like okay that fucking makes me want to go back to bed <laughs> you can't write something like that about someone yeah um 
And then, you know, there were all these TV production companies that wanted to do, like, reality show with me, right? I'm like, what, like Lutheran Duck Dynasty? What? <laughs> do you know, or like real lady pastors of Denver County? <laughs> Just like, it's insane. So the whole celebrity thing, I find really unsettling. And so I've said no to a lot of stuff. I just say no, because my parish is kind of overrun with tourists as it is. You know, I I don't like signing my book at my church or like getting people get selfies with me on the way out. It's gross. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's some great stuff. Like I have, you know, I've got a decent platform. Like if there's stuff I love or things going on that I think people should know about, I get to share that and a ton of people learn about it. Like mm-hmm. I love that. Like I'm... So that piece is awesome, but uh, the other stuff's weird. I get recognized a lot because, you know, I'm one and heavily tattooed. There just aren't that many women like that. So mm-hmm. I get recognized in weird places and w- when I'm with my kids and I don't know. Like, look, if you're in a band, like you kind of in the back of your mind might think, oh, maybe one day I'll be really successful and famous, right? Or if you go to acting school, I went to seminary, you know, like I didn't, this is not what I was thinking was gonna happen Mm -hmm. nobody prepares you for that so i'm i'm just trying to keep my integrity intact and boy with these weird offers i've been getting if i wasn't pretty grounded and rooted at this point in my life i could see how i could just go down a really weird path you know yeah because they offer you money and they offer you that blah 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 you know you know, I, I really appreciate that you've sort of drawn a line in the sand and, and kind of, you know, have, have said to no, no to things. And that's that's not easy to do. I think that's that's, no. a, that's actually really hard to do, uh, you know, when and and that's, you know, I've realized, I think as you grow in, in your career and as you reach some level of success, there are always these sort of tests of your values and your integrity. Yes, exactly. Oh, my gosh. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. It's hard. Wow. Well, Nadia, this has been uh, really, really fascinating. Like I said, uh, you know, when my friend Yana told me about you, I was like, yeah, we got to do this. This sounds like a conversation I want to have on the air. Uh, so I'm going to wrap things up with with my final question, uh, which we close all our interviews here with Un- at Unmistakable Creative with. Uh, what do you think it is uh, that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. Wow, that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that um, I think you can only come to sort of the a singularity through freedom. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I mean, through really the freedom, like I said, to be wrong, to express yourself, to be creative. I mean, like I would say, even maybe more than me, it feels like my congregation is unmistakable, and um, and I think it's because we're not self-conscious about trying to be something, mm-hmm. right? We're not trying to be queer inclusive. We just started with a bunch of queer people and then they just keep coming, right? So there's a way that that self-consciousness about trying to be something is you can kind of smell it, right? And it's not compelling. So I think when you have that freedom, you know, we didn't, uh, we do all these weird things like we have a blessing of the bicycles every year. (laughs) You know, it's like this huge event where we have this, thurible with the incense that is made out of parts from a vintage Schwinn and we're like sensing the bikes with incense and you know like and people are like god why would you do that and I'm like because it just makes sense to us because we're free you know and this is what we love and well if you want a theological statement I think god is for bikes there you go print that right (laughs) I mean do you know (laughs) so I think like not trying to be anything, uh-huh. you know, and just doing what, what totally makes sense and not having to judge it and not having to be afraid of failing. I think that makes you unmistakable. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Nadia, uh, it's been my absolute pleasure to have you here as a guest on The Unmistakable Creative. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights and your story with our listeners. Oh, it's really fun. I'm really glad you asked me. Thanks. Yeah. Absolutely. And for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.